1: The first thing Ludmilla Trutt noticed on the farm was the smell. A mix of wet fur and animal droppings, the stench of foxes packed too close together. But what truly terrified her was the viciousness of the foxes. Every time she approached their cages, they snarled at her, snapping their teeth. Ludmilla referred to them as fire breathing dragons. And somehow, it was her job to tame them. It was all part of an experiment to try and domesticate foxes. It was highly dangerous work, and not just because of the snarling and snapping. Ludmilla was working in Siberia, where temperatures regularly dropped to 40 degrees below zero. Even more dangerous was the political climate. For reasons I'll explain in a moment, this research was illegal in the Soviet Union then. Her boss's brother had actually been murdered for doing similar work. Fire! And between the Soviet authorities and the bloodthirsty foxes, Ludmila couldn't help but wonder if her life would be next. Now, this story about Ludmilla's secret research actually started with an idea from a listener, Penelope in South Dakota. Penelope suggested a story about the science of stuffed animals. And when I heard that suggestion, I admit I was stumped. What science was there in stuffed animals? But I quickly realized there was way more science here than I ever expected. Probably the most famous stuffed animal of all time was the teddy bear named after Teddy Roosevelt. And if you go back and look at those first teddy bears, they look a little... unusual. The first teddy bears were cute, but they had long, gangly limbs like a teenager, and really small heads. They look nothing like stuffed animals now. And I got to wondering why. Why did the appearance of teddy bears change so much over the past century? Believe it or not, the answer traces right back to Ludmilla's work in Siberia. It's a tale of Nazis and murderous communists and secret research on vicious foxes. But from that savagery emerged the key to understanding some of the most beloved toys of all time. You'll never look at a teddy bear the same way again. Hi, I'm Sam Keane, and you're listening to The Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciencey history podcast where footnotes become the real story. It sounds crazy, but the science of genetics was illegal in the Soviet Union during much of the Cold War. During World War II, Nazi Germany promoted a perverted form of genetics to promote their ideas about a master race. And in their zeal to fight the Nazis, extreme left-wing Soviet leaders decided that genetics itself was evil too. So they banned it. And any scientist who taught or practiced genetics was declared a reactionary monster and murdered. These murder victims included one Nikolai Belyaev a geneticist who worked on silkworms and who was executed in 1937. But Nikolai had a younger brother, Dmitry, who worked with foxes. Dmitry Belayev looked a bit like Leonid Brezhnev, chubby with thick black caterpillar eyebrows. And officially, Dmitry was doing research on foxes to help grow the Soviet fur industry, which made coats and gloves. Secretly, though, Dmitry had another agenda. His real interest was genetics, specifically the genetics of domestication. Around 15,000 years ago, human beings started domesticating dogs, and Dimitri wanted to understand that process. How had it happened? Did dogs become tamer because of certain genes, or was it all learned behavior? What drove that transition from wild wolf to household pet? Now, ideally, Dimitri would have studied wolves directly, but he didn't want to end up murdered like his brother. So, foxes were his compromise, since foxes and dogs are closely related. His experiment on domestication would look like this. In any population of animals, there's variation in behavior. With wild foxes, most of them are pretty mean, but there are a few relatively tame ones, too, ones who won't immediately bite you. So Dimitri decided to breed those tame foxes with each other. His hope was that their children would be even more tame. Then he'd breed the tamest children in that second generation with each other to produce another generation of even tamer ones. Then he'd repeat that process year after year. If this line of foxes ended up being more tame than control foxes raised in the same circumstances, then genetics obviously played a big role in domestication. Best of all, he could do this research without arousing political suspicions. He would simply tell the authorities that tame foxes would be easier to feed and care for. So this work would help the great Soviet fur industry overall. Who at the Kremlin could possibly argue with that? So, Dmitry had his research plan, to study domestication by breeding tame foxes. Unfortunately, he couldn't run the experiment himself. He didn't want to draw suspicion to himself, and besides, he was a professor stuck at a research institute in the big city, far away from the fox farms in the Siberian countryside. So, he turned to an assistant, biologist Lyudmila Trott. Lyudmila stood just five feet tall, with short, wavy hair, and she'd always adored animals. As a girl in Moscow, she used to carry dog treats with her at all times, just in case she passed one on the street. In college, she'd done top-notch research on the behavior of crabs, and her supervisor happened to be a friend of Dimitri's. So when Dmitri quietly put out the word that he needed an assistant for a top-secret project, the supervisor recommended her. Now, when Dmitri made his pitch to Lyudmila, he did not sugarcoat things. He told her that she was risking a one-way trip to the Gulag. And that wasn't the only risk. Breeding mammals is long, slow work. Ludmilla might spend years on the task, even decades. And at the end of all that time, the experiment might still fail. Was she willing to gamble her whole career on this? Ludmilla honestly didn't know. Even worse, the fox farm was in Siberia. She'd actually just married a man in Moscow and had a new baby daughter. Could she really uproot her family? But the chance to work on domestication with a dog relative was too exciting to pass up. Ludmila talked her husband into it, and the family moved west in 1958. She immediately regretted it. She and her family lived in Novosibirsk, a big city. But the fox farm itself was basically in Mongolia, a 13-hour train and bus trip away. As a result, she had to spend weeks at a time away from her young daughter. And the farm itself was horrid. It smelled awful of wet fur and droppings. And the foxes were unbelievably vicious. She had to wear thick leather gloves whenever she opened their cages. They looked like something you'd handle plutonium with. And some foxes went after her face, too. How could she ever hope to domesticate these dragons? Still, there were a few foxes that weren't completely vicious. Two of them even allowed themselves to be picked up sometimes. One was named Laska, after the Russian word for gentle. The other was named Kisa, or Kitty. Mind you, Laska and Kisa didn't like Lyudmila exactly, but they at least tolerated her. So she took them and a few others and bred them. And that's how things went for a few years. She'd spend 95% of her time being snapped at. But every so often, she'd find a slightly tamer fox and would pair it with another one and breed them. All the while, she was taking data in secret to avoid detection from the authorities. More than once, she nearly quit. The weather was brutal there, even by Russian standards, and she regretted missing her daughter's milestones. Uh, 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 Dimitri would visit the farm sometimes and encourage her. But on the coldest, darkest days, when the foxes were especially ferocious... She seriously questioned what she'd done with her life. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in True Accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
1: When the breakthrough finally happened, it was subtle. By the spring of 1963, Ludmilla had bred a few dozen moderately tame pups. And one day, as she approached their pen, she noticed something strange. One pup, named Ember, was staring right at her and wagging its tail. Now, foxes do wag their tail sometimes, mostly to shake off fleas, and occasionally when they're happy to see each other. But Ember did not have fleas, and he was not looking at other foxes. He was staring at Ludmilla and wagging his tail like a happy dog. It was the moment where everything shifted for her. The moment she realized that something special was happening inside the foxes. And over the next few years, her suspicion was confirmed. Pretty soon, the foxes weren't just wagging their tails, but pressing up against the cages to greet her. Other foxes would lick her fingers or roll over to have their bellies scratched. Some even came running when someone called their name. And these new behaviors weren't the only changes. The foxes were changing physically as well. In particular, the tame foxes looked different than feral foxes. Feral foxes have sharp snouts, lean legs, small heads, and erect ears. The tame foxes didn't. They had shorter snouts, bigger heads and eyes, big paws, and floppy ears. Now, think about those traits. Big eyes, big heads, what do they remind you of? Babies. You see, babies aren't just mini-adults. They're proportioned differently, with some parts larger than normal. Same with animal pups. Pups have big, clumsy paws and floppy ears and short snouts. And so did the tame foxes, even as adults. That told Ludmilla something important. Remember, she'd been breeding the foxes based only on tameness, not on looks. But the baby-like looks came along for the ride into adulthood. It's a trait that scientists now call neoteny. And neoteny is present in more than just foxes. Those same changes happened with all domesticated animals. Dogs, cows, sheep, whatever. They're obviously tamer than their wild counterparts. But they also look different and they all tend to look different in the same way. They look more like toddlers. It seems that gentle behavior and gentle appearance are intrinsically linked on a genetic level. And the first real proof of this link came from Ludmilla's foxes. As the years passed, in fact, the foxes got even more domesticated and dog-like. Some of them went for walks on leashes. One would fetch its master's ashtray, Other foxes even learn to mimic human laughter. Listen to this video I found online. (laughs) That's a fox making that sound. Incredibly, the people working with the foxes changed too. Remember, to keep her research secret, Ludmilla conducted it on a regular fox farm. And most of the attendants at the farm were hardened peasants with unsentimental views about animals. To them, animals were for labor and food, and yet more. But even the grizzled peasants melted when they saw those baby-looking adult foxes. Ludmilla would catch them snuggling with them, and scratching their bellies, and feeding them scraps from their meager lunches. They were completely smitten. Which actually makes sense, given our evolutionary history. Long ago, people who thought big heads and big eyes were cute naturally wanted to be around babies more, and had more babies themselves. These people also made better parents because they doted on their babies, which boosted the baby's chances for survival. That love of baby-like features then got passed down to the next generation. Eventually, it became nearly universal among human beings. And animals can trip those same triggers. It's why we find baby bears and elephants and even baby reptiles so irresistibly cute. And adults with baby-like features, like those domesticated foxes, trip those triggers too. In essence, domesticated animals hijacked our baby sympathy circuits and made us want to be around them. Call it manipulative, but it's a good reminder that domestication was a two-way street. The animals changed, but so did the people. And here's the point we can finally circle back to stuffed animals. Remember, I mentioned that the very first teddy bears had small heads and long snouts and slender limbs, sort of like skinny adult bears. But toy manufacturers gradually realized that they could sell way more stuffed animals by giving them juvenile features. Scientists have actually studied this. They got out calipers and measuring tapes for teddy bears from different decades. And inevitably, the later bears had shorter limbs and bigger heads and paws. Not because the toy designers had PhDs in biology. But in changing the teddy bears' looks, they inadvertently hit upon the same laws of neoteny and psychological triggers that Ludmilla and Dimitri discovered in Siberia. So yeah, there's some serious psychology and biology behind your beloved childhood toys. I want to thank Penelope again for the question that sparked this episode. And if you'd like to suggest a topic yourself, please become a patron of the podcast at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. There's also a bonus episode there where I explain how another set of animals has gotten more neotenic and juvenile looking over time. Namely, Disney characters like Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Ooh. The bonus episode also delves into the story behind the very first Teddy Bear, a story involving a former slave who was possibly the greatest hunter of his generation and his unusual run-in with Teddy Roosevelt. All that and more for just a few cents per day at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. Even though and Ludmilla's experiments on foxes started in secret, they didn't end that way. Dmitry's brother had been murdered for studying genetics. But by the late 1960s, the Soviet Union had thawed somewhat, and genetics was grudgingly accepted as real. As a result, Dmitry and Ludmilla's work became famous. By the mid-1980s, they had 500 tame foxes running around their farm. Sadly, Dmitri passed away from lung cancer in 1985, and the farm fell on hard times after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Many foxes there starved or were stolen for their pelts, and Lyudmila was reduced to walking alongside the highways in Russia and begging money from strangers to keep the rest alive. But, determined as ever, she succeeded. In fact, she's still alive today and still tending the foxes. It's now one of the longest-running experiments in science history, and it's still revealing new things about how domestication works in animals. Something like half of all American adults still have a stuffed animal from their childhood. I'm pretty sure I still have a stuffed koala bear at my parents' house. It's a nice memory. But there's more than just memories there. The next time you see your big-headed, big-eyed sidekick from childhood and give it a big squeeze take a moment to think about those incredible foxes in Siberia. And remember that the roots of your affection run far deeper than you probably ever realized. For more information about this episode, visit patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. There, you can also suggest stories for future episodes, get signed merchandise, and find bonus material like extra podcasts and pictures. Also visit samkeen.com slash podcast. There you can find more incredible stories from my books and learn how to book me as a speaker at your school or event. And if you like this podcast, please spread the word to others, both online and in person. I'm listener-supported. And word of mouth means a lot. Thanks for listening to The Disappearing Spoon.